I just wanted to start off by saying, um, you know, we knew that we were going to go through the book of Genesis um, a long time for a while, and so, um, uh, and, uh, and I've known about this section that I was going to go through, and um, I think this is probably going to bother me, this thing here, but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, um, so I'm just going to say that I'm stoked this morning. So when I say the word, I'm stoked, that like dates me. Does anyone, what, do you, what, what era do you think I'm from when I say I'm stoked? Yeah, there you go, 80s, yes. That's my generation. So <laughs> that just means I'm fired up. I don't know. Um, I'm lit, maybe, for those in this generation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> So I'm, I'm excited this morning, and, um, and this morning, um, uh, I'm, I kind of see this, this is going to really be like, a, I'll just call it really an equipping time, so um, I'm not really going to reveal how far we're going to get this morning, because uh, I don't really want to say till the end, <laughs> okay, because <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk about a lot of things, all right, and we are going to look at some verses, but uh, there's going to be a lot of commentary this morning as well, all right? <clears throat> so um, last, well, two weeks ago, so I want to refresh our memory since, since we kind of started, Eric started with an introduction to Genesis, and then, uh, then we had Easter, okay? We had Easter magic last, <clears throat> last week with David, and, uh, and then so this week we're going to pick up with Genesis again. So... Um, what Eric discussed, I'm just going to remind us, um, was how we were going to approach the book of Genesis, okay? And just to remind us all, the three main takeaways were this. We're going to take it literally. Um, we will approach Genesis from a historical, grammatical approach. And we will preach exegetically, which just means that we will draw out from the passage what is here, um, not from what is not here. And uh, we will try to draw out the meaning in its original context, all right, so you might say, well, why? Why, why are you guys going to do that? All right? And, um, and I, I want to answer those <clears throat> questions because in our understanding, it's the only way. Um, you guys might think like, well, that's a lame answer. That's like, that's like just saying, well, I asked my mom why, and she says because, you know? Um, so kids, like if you're here this morning, I want to raise your hands if, if you're, if your parents ask you to do something and, and you say why and they say because, do you guys like that answer? No, not very satisfying. How about like if you're, you're an employee and, and your boss asks you to do something and, um, and you ask them why? Well, actually, you probably shouldn't ever do that really. But, uh, but if they told you because, you probably wouldn't like that answer. Um, so I'm going to give you some more meat behind the because to help us understand where we're coming from, okay, on why we're going to approach the book of Genesis this way. Like, I'm going to put some meat on the bones. Um, so the statement um, I made about how we're going to approach it, and I'm going to answer this question, why? And um, really, we believe it's because the New Testament demands it. This is one reason. Um, both Jesus and Paul assert the literal interpretation of Genesis, and um, you have Jesus referring to Adam and Eve, Noah, Abel, God creating man in his own image. 
Um, and I just want us to look at one verse that uh, is shared uh, where Jesus is talking in, in uh, Mark 13, 19. Um, so I'm going to go there, and if I get there before you, I'll just start reading it. <clears throat> Mark 13, 19. And he's talking about the end, the end times, um, the end of the age. And I'm just going to just pick this verse out of context. He says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been, been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. So Jesus, Jesus credits God with the creation. He says, you know, God created the creation. He created it all. Jesus gives him credit for that. Um, and then Paul refers to Adam. Paul refers to Abraham. Paul refers to God as the creator. And there are many passages, but I want us to look at these together. Um, uh, you can either write them down or just um, turn to them with me. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's Paul quoting Genesis 1. Okay, um, 2 Corinthians 11.3, since we're in 2 Corinthians already. <clears throat> so 11.3, Paul says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So there's Paul taking a literal viewpoint of, of the, serp, the story with Eve and the serpent and, 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 and explaining it here to the Corinthians. And then Acts 17. Um, I, let's go ahead and turn there if you haven't turned into these other ones yet because I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. All right, and, um, and there's a lot to read here. So let's, if you could turn to Acts 17, please do. And, um, and I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Um, so this is where Paul was in Athens, and he, um, he uh, addresses um, the Areopagus, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I don't know what the right pronunciation is. Okay, so it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That kind of tell, tells us what goes on here at this Areopagus place. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So here's Paul asserting literally that he believes in Adam, that God created Adam, and from Adam all people came from him, that God created it all. So um, um, Eric also said last week that we were going to try to point out the connection between Genesis and the person and work of Jesus and salvation as much as God you know, shows us in the book of Genesis. And I want to give us just one example with respect to sin and salvation of that doctrine that is critical to taking what God reveals in Genesis literally, just as Jesus did and just as Paul did. So bear with me as I read this. This is an answer from um, a gentleman named Tim Keller, which some of you might have heard of, as he is responding to a question about the implications of not believing in a literal Adam. <clears throat> and this is, this is really, um, this is actually something that I never actually thought of until this week when I was just, you know, doing a lot of study for this message. So, so bear with me as I read this, okay, and, and try, to <clears throat> try to follow along as best you can, okay? Some may respond, quote, even though we don't think there was a literal Adam, we can accept the teaching of Genesis 2 and Romans 5, namely that all human beings have sinned and that through Christ we can be saved. So the basic biblical teaching is intact, even if we do not accept the historicity of the story of Adam and Eve, unquote. That's what he's being presented with, all right? That we, don't, we can still believe these things even if we don't believe in a literal Adam. And then he goes on to start saying, I think that assertion is too simplistic. The Christian gospel is not good advice, but good news. It is not directions on what we should do to save ourselves, but rather an announcement of what has been done to save us. The gospel is that Jesus has done something in history so that when we are united to him by faith, we get the benefits of his accomplishment, and so we are saved. As a pastor, I often get asked how we can get credit for something that Christ did. The answer does not make much sense to modern people, but it makes perfect sense to ancient people. Now, he's going to use a word here that doesn't really make sense to us, okay, but he'll go on to explain it a little bit. It is the idea of being in, quote, federation with someone in a legal and historical solidarity with a father or an ancestor or another family member or a member of your tribe. You are held responsible or you get credit for what other, that other person does. Another way to put it is that you are in a covenant relationship with the person, an example is Achan. You guys remember that story of Achan who sinned and God, you know, 
whose entire family is punished when he sins, back in the book of Joshua. The ancient and biblical understanding is that a person is not what he is simply through his personal choices. He becomes what he is through his communal and family environment. So if he does a terrible crime or does a great and noble deed, others who are in federation or in solidarity or in covenant with him are treated as if they had done what he had done. This is how the gospel salvation of Christ works, according to Paul. When we believe in Jesus, we are in Christ. One of Paul's favorite expressions and a deeply biblical one, we are in covenant with him, not because we are related biologically, but through faith. So what he has done in history comes to us. What has all this to do with Adam? A lot. Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 15 about Adam and Christ that he does in Romans 5. And here's the verse. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. When Paul says we are saved in Christ, he means that Christians have a covenantal federal relationship with Christ. What he did in history is laid to our account, but in the same sentence, Paul says that all human beings are similarly, he adds the word as, as for emphasis, in Adam. In other words, Adam was a covenantal representative for the whole human race. We are in a covenant relationship with him, so what he did in history is laid to our account. When Paul speaks of being in someone, he means to be covenantally linked to them so their historical actions are credited to you. It is impossible to be in someone who doesn't historically exist. If Adam doesn't exist, Paul's whole argument that both sin and grace work covenantally falls apart. You can't say that Paul was a man of his time but accept his basic teaching about Adam. If you don't believe what he believes about Adam, you're denying the core of Paul's teaching. Does that make sense? I mean, that you see how we, how we approach Genesis has major implications to our faith and what we believe about our faith. Um, so as Eric said last week, and this is a direct quote. Um, see, Eric's already being quoted. Uh, in an effort to reconcile this literal account of the beginnings of mankind with the theories and hypotheses of science and secular philosophies, we now have a myriad of different and conflicting views on creation and how mankind came to be, unquote. <clears throat> and the example I just shared is just one example of a major important doctrinal truth that becomes undone or twisted or reduced to meaninglessness when we don't interpret God's word the way he used the authors to write it. Um, all of this makes me think of the verse in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Um, we won't go there, but some of you might be familiar with it where God is talking about in the end times, people will be lovers of this and lovers of money and haters of their parents and stuff. One of the lines in there is that he says, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. And that is literally where some today who would even call themselves people of faith um, have reduced God to. 
they have bought into believing in a non-omnipotent, non-powerful God. Okay, they, a lot of people, there's churches going on today in the Kansas City area where, I mean, people are worshiping a God that doesn't do miracles, okay, that has no power, okay? And because of how they approach, frankly, the book of Genesis, you know, and, um, and, and that's sad. Um, so before we jump completely into the text, <clears throat> I want to take a rabbit trail to just address um, the most common worldview that is out there. And I want to do this because, you know, I said this is like an equipping time. And, and um, you know, before we get all into the book of Genesis, there's just so much in Genesis 1 that, that we can cover. And there's just so much there. And then you know, we'll, we'll pick it up. We'll pick up the pace, you know, after we get probably after Genesis three, maybe or something. But, um, uh, so what do you think the most common worldview that is out there that is the antithesis to the approach that we will be taking to the book of Genesis? What? Yes, I'm just going to say evolution, okay? So um, I, you know, not going to like make a big uh, diatribe against evolution, uh, but I want, do want to spend a few minutes uh, talking about this and giving us some information about it, okay? Because um, I think it's important that we um, just, you know, understand how to interact with that worldview, okay? <clears throat> um, let me start by saying that Evolution has an unsolvable scientific problem. Um, who knows what they think that is, their problem? Problem with um, their unsolvable um, scientific problem. Huh? Yes, what's another way to say that, maybe? Huh? That's, yes, that's, okay. Everything, stuff. That's the kind of what. Yes, it's just stuff. Stuff is here. Stuff, stuff is here. And and how did it get here? Right. Um, yes. That that is the fact that things exist is is the problem. And um, and so in my mind, um, it requires more. And I'm use the word faith. Um, just faith is you know trusting in something. Um, to believe in the things that the leading scientists in evolutionary circles believe than to submit um, to and believe God's word. But I understand why they don't, and I'll get into that later as well. But to me, it takes more faith to believe those things, um, and, and you'll, I'll get into that. Um, I assume that most of you have heard of Stephen Hawking, right? Famous British scientist. I think he died maybe a year ago or two. Um, but what's interesting is um, um, there was a quote that came out in 2010, and and I remember when I when it came out, and and actually, I it's like uh, when I was preparing for this, I I, I distinctly remember I, I came across this quote, and I'm like, I remember when that came out. I remember when I first saw that, um, and I remember my reaction to it because. I was thinking, he's kind of an older man now. He's like in his 60s. And, um, 
you know, he, he's, he's always been, um, he's always had this evolutionary worldview and been an advocate for evolution and, and said different things related to the origins of life. But this one statement that he just came out with in 2010, I thought, you're, you're like literally like grasping at straws here now. Maybe is it because it's the end of your life and you... So, so I'm, I'm just going to... That was my reaction when I, when I heard this. Um, um, I, I felt like it was just this last-ditch attempt to answer uh, the age-old question of where did we come from. And so I'm going to give you this quote um, from September 2nd, 2010. <clears throat> quote, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper whatever that means, I'm not sure, and set the universe going. But just, I mean, he, I hadn't seen him say anything like that before, but then all of a sudden here towards the end of his life, he comes out with this bombastic statement about how the universe can create itself from nothing, to where all of his followers might go like, oh, okay, well, that answers it then. The universe can create itself from nothing. Yes, we've, got, we've finally got the answer. You know, and, um, and I thought, that's radical faith there. That, that is radical faith, okay? Um, and probably you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking, right? Is um, what about the question, where did gravity come from? Um, and, and where did the notion of law come from? I mean, it still goes back to what you said, Carolyn, is like, keeps going back to like, where, you know, where, where did nothing come from? <laughs> You know, um, and it's amazing that God just simply answers these kinds of existential questions, right? He created mankind, and he knew we would have these questions, right? He knew we would have these kind of questions. And, and so where did he answer them? In the first verse of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? That, like, he knew we would have these questions, and he, he, didn't, he didn't, like, he didn't hide it. He didn't, like, oh, man, where's the answer to life? He just put it right in the first word, in the beginning, God. So he's like, don't worry about all that because I was there. You know, that, that answers it. That you, don't need to, you don't even need to spend your life work determining the origin of life, to finding out the, this existential question because I'll just answer it for you in the first verse that, of this book that I'm going to give to you, you all. In the beginning, I was there. Um, another quote I'm going to give you guys is from Richard Dawkins, which you've probably heard of. He's probably on the level of Stephen Hawking. He's another British scientist that um, is, is uh, very famous in the, in the um, evolutionary worldview circles. <clears throat> and he said, quote, the universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple, just physics and chemistry, just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion that gave birth to time and space. The fact that it did not, the fact that life evolved out of literally nothing, 
some 10 billion years after the universe evolved literally out of nothing is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to do it justice. And even that is not the end of the matter. Not only did evolution happen, it eventually led to beings capable of comprehending the process by which they comprehend it. So he's basically saying that not only did it happen, but then finally we figured it out, you know. Um, and now another quote by Dawkins is this, quote, every animal owes its existence to an astonishing list of contingencies that might not have happened. So when I saw that quote, I was like, contingencies, what are contingencies? Well, so this is, by definition, this is what a contingency is. It's a future event or circumstance which is possible but cannot be predicted with certainty. So I'm just going to pick on Ethan, all right? If you could answer, can you stand up for a second? All right, all right, let's just say um, I give you a coin and you flip the coin. What, what could it come out? Heads or tails. Okay, so if you flip the coin, um, um, oh, okay, and what are the chances that it comes out heads or tails? Um, 50%. Yeah, 50, 50%, all right. So if you flip that coin, you're going to flip it 10 times. If you flip it nine times and it comes out heads nine times in a row, all right, and then everyone in the room is like, okay, wow, we're going we're gonna to bet on that 10th time, okay? Um, now, you're going you're gonna to flip it the 10th time. What are the odds that it comes out um, heads the 10th time? 50%. 50%. It's the same. Just because it did nine times in a row before the 10th time, you can sit down. Thank you. It doesn't change the odds, all right? It, it's, it doesn't matter. I mean... What it did in the past has no bearing on what, what the future is going to be there. And, and so what he's talking about in my mind here is that um, every animal owes its existence to an astonishing list. I mean, I mean, I'm thinking like many, many, many contingencies that might not have happened. Like all these things, they, they had to line up. They had to like, they, all, they had to, it would be like so many things would have to simultaneously happen at just the right time and just the right order, okay? Um, um, and I say, maybe that is why he also says, because there's another quote he says, it's an astonishing stroke of luck that we are here. Um, so, uh, Again, I, I say to us this morning that um, I would categorize those positions as ones of radical faith, okay? Um, uh, but it's, it's a, okay, but what's amazing is I was, I was reading so much stuff this week and, and a lot yesterday, and what's crazy, I just, I just couldn't believe it, but I'm just going to read the statement that I wrote. I was astounded at the absolute level of absolute certainty in the writings of the folks in these evolutionary scientific communities, writing bombastic statements that absolutely have no proof and yet written as absolute fact. I mean, it, 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 wasn't, even, it wasn't even like 
this is a possibility or potentially this is the way. It, it, was, it was just flat out like, this is what happened. And this is, and, and there are things like, that thing was 10 billion years or 10, I mean, that, how can you, you can't even, I mean, that's like not even, I don't even know how, you get, how they get away with that, but that's just, anyway. Now, okay, from their perspective, I'm thinking that they're thinking that is most likely how they look at how we believe God's word. They're probably thinking like, well, you guys have no proof and whatever, and you're just believing and you're saying it like it's absolute fact. But we're people who admit that we walk by faith. You know, we walk by faith. Um, and they don't have the intellectual honesty to admit the same, which, they, which you know. Um, so, um, so as much as I know we can easily be intimidated by so-called scientific facts, and when I say so-called scientific facts, I'm just going to talk about a lot of the theories that are out there, okay? Sometimes, like, something will come out, um, and it almost sounds like it's fact, right? They'll come out with something, and, and because, like I said, because the things are written in such absolute terms, you're like, wow, really? The um, uh, such and such uh, star is this, or the sun, or something, and you're like, hmm. It, but a, lot, a lot of these things, these so-called facts, are, are indeed theories. Um, but sometimes we can be intimidated by things, things. So I wanted to go over some of this this morning to assure you that we don't need to be, and we should not feel backed into a corner when we feel confronted by these so-called facts from the scientific community. Um, now, when we do learn of actual scientific facts, how should we respond? You know, if we um, light... If scientists have proven light travels at 186,000 meters per second, I think, huh? Feet per second. Okay, there you go. Okay, if that's a scientific fact, we should go, wow, that's amazing, God. Gravity can bend light? That's amazing. I mean, we don't need to shy away from scientific facts. We can just be in awe and wonder of the amazing God who created light. And I think sometimes we believe that in order to convince people to believe, we need to become experts in biblical apologetics. Um, and I know for me, sometimes that makes me, can make me feel overwhelmed. And um, you might just picture a big stack of books that you have to like digest in order to like really have a, a water cooler conversation with someone at work because they're spouting off all these theories as, as facts, and you're like, man, I don't even know what to say to them. I wish I could talk like Ravi Zacharias, but I'm not, I don't know all the stuff that he knows, and so how am I ever going to be able to, you know, I'm just intimidated, and I feel inferior to these people, um, but I don't want us to fall into that trap, um, and I'm going to make a statement right now, and before you react to it, just sit back and hear me out, okay? Um, I don't think that biblical apologetics is going to silence skeptics in the first place, and oftentimes it will not even make them go back on their errors, okay? Um, and just hear me out for, for a minute, okay? So um, I'm just going to give you a couple examples here. Um, do, uh, does anyone remember um, the thing called Haeckel's embryos? Um, I don't know, maybe some that are older, 
would remember it. Um, another th- the way that it's called is the theory of recapitulation. It, it, you know, um, you might, in science textbooks, um, it's, like, it's like that chart that has like about like five columns on the top and like four or five rows on the bottom. It shows like all the eggs at the top and then the egg turns into like an alien looking thing, turns into a salamander and then at the very bottom, you know, you get a human. Um, so that, that, that came out like, I think in the um, late 1800s or something. Um, well, by the, uh, by the early 20th century, the scientific community had relegated that theory to, to fiction, to biological fiction. And yet that, um, that theory or, was still in textbooks through the 60s. Okay, it, it might even still be in textbooks today, I don't know. But at least through the 60s, that was still being propagated through the public school system, okay? Um, that that's how, you know, creation happened. Um, another one is, um, does anyone remember the uh, Nebraska man thing? Uh, okay, they found a tooth. It was about 1970, 1917, this farmer, I guess he was a geologist as well, found a tooth in his field in Nebraska and um, he sent it to a guy um, in like 1922. And um, basically, they ended up from that tooth making a whole like ape-like man, kind of like the missing link guy, okay? Um, that lasted till about 1930 or so, or the, the, the end of, of the, um, the 1920s, where just from that tooth, I mean, it was just like, everyone was so rabid about like, we got it, you know, we've gonna, we've found the missing link, you know, let's get it out there. Well, it turns out like, like five years later, they were digging in that field and found more bones and stuff. Turns out it was, a, it was just like a, from a, a pig, a pig-like animal, okay? And then it was debunked. Um, they, they weren't, the guy originally, he didn't have malintent, you know, who found the tooth, but it's just the, I just, I just wanted to demonstrate how the community, that, that community that has that worldview is just like, we're going to like just propagate this stuff, even though we don't have all the facts. That, that's kind of what I'm saying. And so, <clears throat> um, and then there's, um, I don't know if you guys ever learned about uh, Darwin's finches, um, the bird beak thing. So um, that's still in, in books today, but... Um, I just wanted to <clears throat> read this one story um, to you all um, about that. And, and, and that had to do with um, when Darwin was visiting the um, Galapagos Islands. <clears throat> he noticed there's a lot of islands in the, I guess, the Pacific, I guess. And he saw different varieties of finches at the different islands. And so he, he just, his theory was that like, different finches had evolved, you know, into <clears throat> different species as opposed to like what we would believe was God was like, no, God created that finch and that finch and that type finch and that type finch, you know? And um, so <clears throat> here's a little article <clears throat> from this uh, uh, Dr. Brian Thomas, do Darwin's finches prove evolution? So just bear with me for a second. Even those who know very little about evolution have heard that some birds on some islands somehow demonstrate Darwinism. 
and because probably all of us have learned this in school somewhere. Today, the evolutionary idea that all living animals descended from one original animal dominates Western culture. Of course, this idea contradicts God's word, which clearly implies that each animal was created to reproduce only according to its kind, not to transform into different kinds. Do the birds call Darwin's finches really prove Darwinian change between kinds and thus disprove the Bible on this point? Finches live all over the world and many have varieties. 13, spe 13 species of dark colored finches inhabit the Galapagos Islands, situated about 600 miles west of Ecuador in the Pacific Ocean. Each island hosts more than one species, and many of these species can interbreed. Charles Darwin, who helped popularize the idea that animals can change between kinds, collected nine of the 13 finch species when he visited the Galapagos Islands in 1835. Textbooks assert that these finches helped convince Darwin of bird evolution, <clears throat> but this is incorrect. According to molecular biologist Jonathan Wells' book, Icons of Evolution, Darwin did not mention them in his diary of the voyage or in his famous book on the origin of species. The use of the Galapagos finches to represent Darwinian change came a century later through a landmark 1947 book called Darwin's Finches. So it wasn't even Darwin that actually <clears throat> propagated that thing. In 1973, so get this, 1973, because I'm going to say something about later on about 1991, so it's almost 20 years, this couple um, did these, went to the Galapagos Islands like every year and, and, and took pictures and stuff. In 1973, Peter and Rosemary Grant, a husband and wife research team, and, and their evolutionary worldview, they have an evolutionary worldview, um, went to the Galapagos Islands to find out exactly how finches show Darwinian changes. The Grants carefully tracked all the finches on one tiny island and recorded weather patterns and the birds' diets. When a drought struck the islands in 1977, the only readily available finch food was tough nuts. Finches with slightly smaller beaks died, while those few with beaks large enough to more efficiently crack the nuts survived. Evolutionists then suggested that at this rate of beak thickening, more droughts could produce much bigger finch beaks, possibly illustrating the same mechanisms that supposedly drive Darwinian change between kinds. However, 1982 and 1983 brought record rainfall to the Galapagos Islands that allowed the drought-stifled plants to grow back and create a lush environment. With so many soft seeds available for food, bird numbers soared. Finches with smaller beaks came right back. For every supposed evolutionary step forward, finches appear to take a step backward. No net evolution occurs in Darwin's finches. Peter Grant wrote in 1991 that the beak trait in his finch population, quote, is oscillating back and forth, unquote. Summarizing these finds in the college textbook, Evolution, Arthur Mark Ridley wrote that, quote, beaks evolving up in some years, down in other years, and staying constant in yet other years, probably results in some kind of stabilizing selection over a long period of time. But transforming one animal into another kind requires radical change, not stability over a long period of time. Plus, the kind of evolving and subtle beak changes does not illustrate the kind of information adding evolving needed to craft a fish into a reptile or reptile into a bird. In reality, the Galapagos finches have shown their God-given abilities to adapt and survive tough times while keeping within their created kind. So the next time someone suggests that Galapagos finches prove evolution, you can ask, 
How do size fluctuations in already existing beaks explain how bird beaks evolved in the first place? So <clears throat> anyway, um, I was having a conversation with Troy last night. It's just like, um, if you think about it, like, you know, David's taking up guitar playing right now, right? So his, his right hand, his, he's going to start getting calluses on these fingers. And I mean, so his, his body's going to transform. And, um, but he's not going to change into a lizard, you know, or a reptile. It's just that his, the way God made us is we, we adapt to our environment. And, 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 <laughs> uh, and as soon as he quits playing guitar, his hands will go soft again. You know, um, so it really doesn't, adaptation to environment doesn't prove that we're like turning into another um, kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so um, one last thing here. Um, does anyone know who Francis Crick is? Okay. Um, actually, it's... He's pretty quite an extraordinary person. <clears throat> I mean, from what he, a scientist, as far as that goes. He and a man named James Watson were British scientists who discovered DNA's structure called the double helix. They pretty much were the, the guys who, you know, found the whole DNA thing and, and the programming of it and all, and all that. Um, they won a Nobel Prize for their work in 1962. They were also outspoken atheists. Um, and um, here's what Crick said, quote, an honest man armed with all the, and this is, you know, what I'm getting at is about the thing about like, can apologetics, you know, convince someone, I'm going to argue that guy into the kingdom of God, you know, and so just, I want to just take you how a skeptic, you know, where, <laughs> where they're at, you know, and so that I'm ending here with this Frick guy. Listen, this is his quote. An honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle, almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Crick reasoned that life could not have evolved from non-living chemicals under any conceivable earth conditions. So, I mean, the people that like study DNA, a lot of times they conflict with evolution sometimes because it's, it's, it's very complex, right? But the idea of a creator was unacceptable. Since, okay, I, actually I finished his quote when he said going. But the idea of, of a creator was unacceptable since it would go against his atheistic faith. He affirmed this when he said, again, quote, People like myself get along perfectly well with no religious views, unquote. So how does someone as intelligent as this man wrestle with the question about the origin of life? So, you know, how do you think he, you know, the other guys were like, well, then something came from nothing, and that's our answer. How do you think this guy answers the question? Do, 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 do. <clears throat> he does this with a theory called panspermia. 
<clears throat> this comes from the Greek word pan, all, and sperma, seed, meaning that the seeds of life are all through the universe. Crick has refined this idea to directed panspermia to overcome the huge hurdles of evolution of life from non-living chemicals on Earth, you know, because he, <clears throat> he can't get it from the like primordial stew. Um, Crick proposed in a book called Life Itself that some form of primordial life was shipped to the Earth billions of years ago in spaceships by supposedly more evolved, therefore advanced alien beings. Although we tried to solve the problem of the source of intelligence for the creation of DNA without God, Crick only succeeded in pushing the problem into outer space, where, of course, it cannot be tested. So hopefully you mean you see what I mean when I don't think that biblical politics is going to silence skeptics. Um, why? Because the difference between what I believe and what the skeptic believes about a certain scientific fact is not the problem, but rather it's the interpretation of the facts. Like, does DNA exist? Yes, I, I believe that. But I would say, wow, what? I mean, the more I understand about DNA, I'm like, God, you are amazing. This is amazing how you designed us and how you designed this DNA. But the skeptic would say, no, aliens did it. Or billions of years. It took, it took billions of years for that to happen or, or, or whatever. So um, uh, I ran across an article a couple months ago and saved it um, when I knew that we were going to be starting Genesis. And it's, it's interesting. It actually was a very refreshing article because um, even though I don't agree with all of this guy's conclusions, he's a physicist, um, a doctor. He won, you know, this thing called the Templeton Prize. <clears throat> But here's a guy that like actually has the um, intellectual honesty to admit what he what he doesn't know. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm going to read this real quickly, and it doesn't it's it's, it's not yeah it's not too bad. Um, but um, like I said, I don't agree with everything that he says here. But just listen to listen to his open mindedness about it, which you know you just like wish that the ones with the evolutionary worldview would at least have this kind of open mind, okay? Um, <clears throat> the annual Templeton Prize, which recognizes outstanding contribution to affirming life's spiritual dimension, was awarded Tuesday to Brazilian Marcelo Gleiser, a theoretical physicist dedicated to demonstrating science and religion are not enemies. A physics and astronomy professor whose specializations include cosmology, 60-year-old Gleiser was born in Rio de Janeiro and has been in the United States since 1986. An agnostic, he doesn't believe in God, but refuses to write off the possibility of God's existence completely. Quote, atheism is inconsistent with the scientific method, Gleiser told AFP Monday from Dartmouth College. Quote, atheism is a belief in non-belief, so you categorically deny something you have no evidence against, unquote. That's what he says about atheism. Quote, I'll keep an open mind because I understand that human knowledge is limited, unquote. Um, the prize is funded by John Templeton, such and such. Okay, um, the physicist focuses on making complex subjects accessible. He has written on climate change, Einstein, hurricanes, black holes, the human conscious, tracing the links between the sciences and the humanities, including philosophy. Um, 
I'll get to the quotes. Quote, the first thing you see in the Bible is a story of creation, quote, he, unquote, he said, whatever your religion, everybody wants to know how the world came to be. This fundamental curiosity unites science and religion, though each provides very different answers. Science has a methodology where hypotheses are eliminated. Quote, science can give answers to certain questions up to a point, unquote, or quote again. This has been known for a very long time in philosophy. It's called the problem of the first cause. We get stuck. Um, quote, we should have the humility to accept that there's mystery around us, unquote. So what does he think of people who believe that the earth was created in seven days? And then he quotes again. They position science as the enemy because they have a very antiquated way of thinking about science and religion in which all scientists try to kill God, he said. Science does not kill God. On the other hand, he accuses the new atheists of doing a disservice to science by making an enemy out of religion, notably British scientist Richard Dawkins, who called for the arrest of Pope Benedict over... Um, and. Mother Teresa. For Gleiser, who grew up in Rio's Jewish community, religion is not just about believing God. It provides a sense of identity and community. At least half of the population is that way, he said. Quote, it's extremely arrogant from scientists to come down from the ivory towers and make these declarations without understanding the social importance of belief systems. And he continues to quote, when you hear very famous scientists making pronouncements like, Cosmology has explained the origin of the universe and the whole, and we don't need God anymore. That's complete nonsense, he added. Quote, because we have not explained the origin of the universe at all, unquote. So it's just, um, it's just interesting that, like, um, I mean, he'll just admit that it's like the, the human mind is limited, you know, and, and, uh, and it does know everything. <clears throat> um, Okay, one last thing here. Um, I'm going to uh, preface this next statement by telling you I'm giving you my opinion on this because I don't know what all you all believe on things out there. Uh, but in my opinion, I'm not a fan of the intelligent design movement. Um, <clears throat> and um, one of the leading people in that movement is a fellow by the name of Dr. Michael Behe. I don't know if you've heard of him. And he, belie he believes, you know, he kind of mixes to, or tries to, um, as Eric said, um, kind of take and fit science into the Genesis 1 uh, story. And so he believes in the billions of years and natural selection, but he stops short of embracing all points of Darwin's theories because he believes that as a molecular biologist, when he sees things like DNA and things like that, that the things he observes are too complex for there not to be an intelligent creator behind it all. Um, however, that really doesn't buy him a lot in the scientific community, okay? Um, and I don't want to imply that that's his goal in believing that, that he's trying to like buy some points in the scientific community. But, but I just want to point out that in his effort to reconcile science with Genesis, he's still mocked and scorned by the scientific community. I was watching some debates that he was having with people and I mean, and some articles and I mean, the, the evolutionary people, they, they still mock him, you know? Um, so if that's what he generally believes and that's what he generally believes, but why I bring him up is that my point is that any admission to a creator is going to bring mocking from skeptics. So why not just submit to the word of God as God has given it to us? Um, eternity is a long time, okay? And, and you will get a lot of indication if you accept this by faith. Um, 
if you put up with skepticism for 50 years, if you're ridiculed for your beliefs that God created the world, um, that there's a literal Adam, um, if, you, if you put up with that for the next 50 years of your life, that's not even the first minute of the first day of eternity. And um, God is going to vindicate himself, right? Um, sometimes you think of like, what, is, what do you think God's favorite verse is in the Bible? And um, I, I don't know, one of them might be Galatians 6, 7. I'm just going out on a limb here. But it says, God will not be mocked. Okay, God will not. I mean, we might be mocked and that's fine, but God will not be mocked. Okay, and he always keeps his promises. So let us learn something from Paul. I'm going to go back to this Acts 17. Um, I think this is very instructive to us, right? And, and we, we can learn something from it. Um, how he interacted with the skeptics in Acts 17. He didn't try to gain respect from them by somehow discounting the word of God to reconcile it with their beliefs, okay, with their belief systems. Um, rather, he wisely rec- he recognized their beliefs, said like, oh, I see you have this statue over here, says to an unknown God. Um, he recognized their beliefs, but then he just straight out preached the truth of the word of God. He just said, hey, let me just tell you guys, God created the world, you know? And, um, and, and what was the result of that? What was the result? Um, I'm going to go down here um, to verse 30, 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Okay, so he he just came out to the skeptics and he preached the truth. And what was the result? Mocking? Yes. Um, Provoking thought in some? It says, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So he provoked some thought in some by preaching the truth. So, you know, he could come speak to them again. They wanted to hear more. And then... What was the third response he got? But some men joined him and believed. So, so I mean, I, I, I feel like sometimes, I feel like sometimes Christians in this day and age, when we feel backed into a corner, and I, I've been through this phase where you feel like you need to reconcile science with the Bible, or or, or you you sometimes these things because because these days because the evolutionary worldview proclaims so many things that aren't facts as absolute truth and absolute facts. It's hard to discern, like, you know, if they come out with, like, you know, if you, hey, light travels at 186,000 feet per second. Um, okay, is that, is that a real fact or is that one of your theories again? Okay, okay, no, that, that one's a fact. We, we've measured that, you know, or something. So, so then... Um, uh, it, it, it's just that um, we get intimidated by these things, so we try to like figure out how to like reconcile it with the creation, which God didn't mean it for it to be a science textbook, you know. Um, uh, he's just giving us the truth, and um, so we're never going to go wrong by just giving the truth. We might be mocked. Some might ask and say, "Can you tell me more?" And some might just believe, okay? Um, so that's what I meant when I said, like, don't be intimidated and don't feel like, you know what? I need to, like, go get a PhD in Ravi Zacharias stuff 
because I'll, or that's my only way that I'm ever going to be able to win people in this postmodern culture. No, you know, not necessarily. Paul was, he could have like, think of all the ways he could have like argued with these people, but he just gave them the word of God. He just gave them the truth. Um, so I want to wrap up this section by saying that we don't base our faith on subjectivity. Um, what I mean by that is that we don't base our faith based on outcomes or results. Um, for example, you know, I, in fact, I don't even know what the Royals record is today. Anyone know? Nine and 17? That's bad. Okay. But I'm still a fan. Okay. So I don't, I don't, although as a fan, I mean, I don't even know their record. So I'm not really following them very closely. Okay. But um, um, I, I'm not basing my, you know, allegiance to my favorite baseball team based on their results. Um, <clears throat> but I do want to make this point. Um, what we will see even in Genesis is that God is a God of covenants. We're going to cover that sometime here in Genesis. And within these covenants, he exercises the right to bless and curse. And, um, and you can read biographies about people's Christian heritages that without a doubt show evidences of God's blessing, okay? And if you are interested in understanding the fruits or outcomes of the evolutionary worldview, I'd recommend a book by Dr. Henry Morris called The Long War Against God. And he goes into just like, look, this is like, these are the fruits of this worldview, you know, of evolution. And, um, and so it's, and it's not, you know, it's not a pretty picture. Um, but like I said, that, that's, not, that's not why we choose to believe what we believe. It's not, um, but, but it, it is a, a subjective, um, tr- something that's visible, okay? So my last word of encouragement is um, that we pray for boldness like Paul and that God would give us the courage to, to not be backed in the corner. Um, and if all we are able to do is just speak the truth, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then even if we are mocked for it, God will be glorified, okay? And uh, someday God will back those mockers into a corner, okay? Just like he did Job. And I, I just, um, you guys still awake out there? Okay, so turn with me to Job 38, okay? I just want to show you something that um, I know, you know, people aren't having this conversation with God right now, but someday they're going to have to face God. And this is what, this is what Job, this is what God did with Job, okay? Um, to, uh, <clears throat> and, and imagine, just imagine that you're, you're Job <clears throat> in this situation, okay? And um, Job is like, my life stinks, and how can all this be happening to me? And what do you think you're doing, God? Do you even know what you're doing? And so this is how God backs Job into a corner, right? And I mean, trust me, the mockers today, I mean, God is going to back them into a corner. And, and, and look, just... I'm just going to, we'll just kind of go through this pretty quickly here, but look at what he says. Um, And he brings them back to creation facts, right? I mean, and what's interesting is I read this, you'll see that God, God brings out some creation facts that like only because we've progressed to a modern era, we 
know some things here. We now, he talks about springs in the deep. We now know that there's springs in the deep. We know that there's fish that are way down there. We, I mean, so it's interesting because he's talking to Job about stuff that like, they didn't have like submarines that could go hundreds of feet down, but now we, we know that stuff. So, so, um, so but, but God's got probably, God's got hundreds and thousands of more facts that we still don't know, right? You know, um, who is this that darkness, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. So he's like, Job, you know, put your pants on, all right? Because we're going we're gonna to have a talk, all right? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Can you imagine that? Just like the mockers, you know, that like, oh, it came from nothing. And, and, and God's, they're going to stand before God and he's going to say, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? Um, verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Um, Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? He's talking about like stars that he's got up there. Um, uh, verse 37, who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick together? Verse 39, one, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Just think about that. I mean, there's, there's animals running around the earth all over the place that, like, no one's taken care of. No one, I mean, God's just taking care of them. I mean, there's, they're, they're not domesticated. I was thinking about that. I was sitting on the, my back porch yesterday, and, and, and my dog was there. And I was just thinking, like, you know what? If we weren't feeding this dog every day, I mean, we've domesticated this dog. But... Bailey would, would go find a rabbit or a squirrel or something if we didn't feed. I mean, she may die because we've domesticated her, okay? I don't know. But, I mean, but if we didn't domesticate her, she would live. I mean, she'd find another pack of dogs. They'd kill mice, squirrels. I mean, they, she'd find food because God would be feeding her. I mean, she, she'd be taken care of. And, and so it's just... Um, Verse 13, 39, 13, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. Um, and then he goes into verse 40, talks about the behold behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Verse 41, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? I like this. Um, <clears throat> will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? 
okay? God's implying like, you know what? If I'm going to take Leviathan for a walk, I will. You know, if I want to take Leviathan for a little stroll, you know, um, then I'll do it. But can you do that, Job? You know, uh, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I think Leviathan is actually in the water, but if God wants to, you know, walk on the water, <laughs> put a leash on Leviathan. But anyway, it's just, um, and, and then in the end, Job is just like, chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Um, <clears throat> so, um, look at what God is doing here. He just, um, I, I, I think of like, I think that the point is when we see things like, um, I don't know, when's the first time like man, uh, modern man, we, um, I mean, I, I remember it from the, the movie like Finding Nemo or something, right? But that fish that's like way down in the dark that like can do the thing where it's got like the little light and it shines a light, but it's there to like draw something else in and then it like eats it. But that's just amazing, right? Now, what what's, we, we can just as Christians say, gosh, that's just, God, you are so amazing. I can't, you know, just to say when that was first discovered, you know, when you're having a water cooler conversation with someone, just be like, God is so amazing that he made something like that. Or someone else would be like, wow, I cannot believe that that thing evolved. That must have taken, that must have taken billions of years, you know, or something. It's just like, well, that, that's, that's what we're, we're up against, but we do not have to shy away uh, from, from uh, I mean, believing and stating what we believe. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into that in a minute. You guys okay if I keep going? I mean, or uh, I, I, um, I'm almost, well, okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so we're going to move on to Genesis 1. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so one thing I learned from a really good Bible teacher was that when you teach the Bible, try to consider these things. And this is what we talked about when we talked about exegesis, seeing things from their context. What did the Bible mean to the people back then, right? What did it mean to the people back then? You know what I wanted to do, actually, when, when Eric taught last or two Sundays ago? Sometimes, like, um, you know, like, when someone teaches, and then after, like, they've talked for, like, 20 minutes, they'll say, like, um, okay, let's pray. Like, and then you're like, you mean that was just an introduction? And I wanted to like do, do that to you guys at some point. Just thought that'd be funny. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, what did the passage mean to the audience? To It was written to at that time. What does the passage mean for us today? And then what applications can we make to our lives today? <clears throat> so the first of these three questions is what we typically refer to as context. So I want to start out by just laying a foundation of context because it will become very important as we see the wisdom of God in Genesis. So, so picture this, right? Um, um, we, we uh, in our understanding, we're, we, um, our understanding is that Moses <clears throat> wrote the book of Genesis along with um, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus and 
Numbers. And he wrote it during the period of the, wan- the wanderings. And so, um, <clears throat> and so, um, so picture this scenario. There's this group of people that have been wandering around the wilderness and they're about to enter the promised land. And God says, it's yours, but you're going to have to take it. No one's going to hand it to you. Um, you're going to have to fight for it. Those people aren't going away by themselves. It's not going to be easy, but you're going to have to trust me, right? And just picture it. They, 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 don't, have, they don't have the word of God at this point, right? They don't have it. Um, <clears throat> so what does God do? He uses Moses to record the greatness and faithfulness of God from the beginning. So imagine, let's say, um, Luke. Pick on Luke, right? All right, so um, you're hearing Moses is your leader, and he's, and you're hearing, the, or no, you're not hearing from Ro- Moses. You're hearing these rumblings, like these rumors. We're going to have to go into that land and fight, and there's like big people over there, and, 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 I mean, I've got a young family with, with little kids, and I don't want to die, you know? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to do that, you know? Um, so what does God do? He uses Moses to record um, all this in the book of Genesis about him. And so now picture Moses coming over to your tent one night, <clears throat> and um, obviously it wasn't like this, but I'm just you know, painting this scenario, right? Um, and he's reading the book of Genesis to you. So God, God revealed himself through the book of Genesis to Moses and during this time of the wanderings. And now Moses comes over to your tent one night and says, Luke, God wants us to take that land. Let me tell you a little bit of story about God, okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. And he goes all the way from beginning through chapter 50, to the life of Joseph. And imagine how strong your faith would be after that encounter. I mean, imagine how you would hear about how God fulfilled all of his promises to Abraham, how the word of God was powerful, how he spoke things to existence. Um, Would you not come away with seeing um, how your faith would just be like, I'm ready to go. Let's go tomorrow, you know? Um, You know, if you heard that like God's word was so powerful that he could say, let there be light and there was light. And when God is going to say, march around that city seven times and the walls will fall. I mean, I think you'd probably think it's going to happen. I mean, God's word is powerful. I know it now. He revealed that to us. We, we know it, you know? And this could, be, this could be people that maybe didn't see the Red Sea part. This could be some person that was born, I forget how long, how many years were they wandering? 40? So yeah, say this is like a 22-year-old with a young family, right? He was born after they, the Red Sea thing happened, right? He didn't, he didn't actually see it happen, okay? But God revealed himself through Genesis Um, So we'll see other important reasons why God may have chosen to reveal the beginnings of history and the creation story in history at this time, Um, but more on that in in a bit here. So one of the biggest takeaways from Genesis 1 is that God is wanting to make himself known, and we should not be afraid to make the God of all creation known in this day and age where the God of science is the new idol. 
So we're going to look at two passages. And if you guys could stand with me just to, um, you know, get some blood in your legs. Um, let's read um, uh, Psalm 19 together. Did, I think you referred to this last week, didn't you, Eric? Or two weeks ago? Huh? Yeah. So we're going we're gonna to read this together. Um, actually, uh, it's going to be in the ESV. So um, if you don't have that, then actually just follow along. But... <clears throat> And actually, we'll just read, we're just going to read through the first part of verse 4, okay? Um, Psalm 19, here we go. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And we'll just stop there. We'll just stop there. So you guys can have a seat. Okay. Um, so I looked up these Hebrew words and it's really interesting, but the word declare, the heavens declare the glory of God. It, it, it has the meaning like take account of or inscribe Okay, so think of like an accounting or you're inscribing something like say on a tablet or papyrus or something or stone. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's inscripted. It's, it is like inscribed. It is, when you inscribe something, it's like permanent, right? Okay, it's permanent. Um, probably back in that day, they didn't have erasers, right? Okay, so the heavens declare permanently the glory of God. It's inscribed. The, and the sky above proclaims. That word in Hebrew is the word conspicuous. That means standing out so as to be clearly visible. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Um, God meant for his creation. He, he wants to make himself known, all right? And then I'll read Romans 1.19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So I was like looking up the Greek words for um, plain to them and shown it to them and clearly perceived, and really, I, you really can't come up with any better translation than what they came up with. I mean, it's, it's plain. It's plain as day. It's, God showed it, and it's clear, clearly perceived. Um, uh, ever since the creation of the world, um, what God has made. I mean, you just, I mean, we don't live like in Colorado or something where you can just look out the window and there's like the mountains or something, but I don't know. If you, where, who are we talking? We we're talking to Dave Painter about flowers that you can have that draw hummingbirds, right? What kind of flower was that? Okay. There you go. And, and, and I thought like that would be really cool to have some flowers like that because hummingbirds are just something that to me are just amazing creatures, you know, that God created. Um, so, 
And just the way God created everything and that he spoke things into being, you know, it says in Genesis 1 that he spoke, right? I mean, God could have, it could, it could have said like, and he snapped his fingers and the light came and he snapped and the animals came. I mean, but he, used, he spoke, which what is speech? It communicates that you're, you're wanting something to be known. You're communicating. Um, so um, it's, it's got, he doesn't want it to be, he, he didn't do it in secret. Okay, that's my point. Um, and then I also just want to point out <clears throat> that um, in Genesis, we're going to see a pattern in Genesis um, that really introduces us to a pattern for the whole Bible um, where you'll see that sin is introduced, God intervenes, and then God redeems. Okay, we'll see that pattern in Genesis. That pattern follows throughout the whole Bible. Um, and um, so I... I um, <clears throat> As I stated, that one of the biggest takeaways was that God wants to make himself known, but we'll see that God doesn't just want to make himself known, you know, to the universe, to the world, but he also is deeply personal and wants to be known by his created ones. And we'll, as we go through the book of Genesis, we'll see how he um, had personal interactions with Adam and Eve and Abraham and, and Cain and Abel and Sarah and Jacob and others. <clears throat> and... Um, so uh, there's that. Uh, another takeaway that I wanted to point out um, that we'll see throughout our study of Genesis is that at its very core, Genesis is confrontational, okay? And I want us to just sit on this for a second, right? Um, it, it was confrontational then, and I'm going to get into this in the next, you know, week or two um, about how where God introduced it at the time, right? The the, they were going into a land of the people around them in Mesopotamia that had all kinds of different gods, right? Um, and, and, and when God introduced the book of Genesis here, um, uh, he's going to be taking on a lot of worldviews of, of the land around them. Uh, this is just one example, right? But what is the first city that they, God was going to have them go take over when they went to the promised land? Anyone remember Jericho? All right. Does anyone know what Jericho means? It means city of the moon. They were people that worshipped the moon. And actually in Mesopotamia at the time, that was one of the gods that was a big, a big thing that people moon. Uh, I mean, the people worshipped. The moon was a big thing. So, so God takes on that right off the bat, right? Genesis 1. He says, you know that moon? I put that thing there, you know? It's not, so, so I'm, I'm going to confront that worldview that you're going to see that those people are going to say like, oh, the moon God, and he's, no, God's going to say, no, there's no moon God. I'm the God, and I'm the one that put the moon there, okay? So, so it's confrontational. Um, <clears throat> and um, I was just thinking about this, like, actually, I, I've got a new boss at work, and um, so it's, uh, he's got this thing, you know, new bosses always want to introduce something and it's really, he's got this thing where um, he wants us to have a goal and, and actually at Honeywell, it's a big company and there's so many things out of your control. Typically, like how you get graded at the end of the year is it's very subjective 
just to be honest with you, and typically your boss just kind of knows, okay, you're, you're doing a good job or you're not, and they just kind of like rank you, all right? There's really not, you don't really have to be specific about goals. Well, this guy wants everyone on his team to have a specific goal, and, and he wants it to be one of those smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound, all right? Well, that kind of scares me, all right? Okay, because uh, so he can, I'm, what I'm saying is like what comes with confrontation? What comes, he's confronting all of his employees with you need to have a goal. Well, what comes with confrontation is accountability, okay? And I don't want to be accountable to a goal because I like it to be loose, right? I mean, I don't, I mean, there's so many things that are out of my control there. I mean, my goal, I just want it to be like, I eat my lunch every day, you know, um, because I, I, so I'm trying to think of a goal that like I can control rather than something that involves other people or computer systems or something that like is totally out of my control that I can't meet. So I, I'm kind of praying even like, God, help me. Like, what is a goal that I know I can meet? So, um, this is a side note, but when it comes to like people believing and talking about the skeptics and how we're not going to like talk them into the kingdom of God, because ultimately when I say it's like, it's almost, it's easier to have, like, like I say, they're, they're, they're putting faith in something that's pretty radical where people are walking by faith. But the difference is how come they won't just submit to the word of God and have faith in the word of God? Because our faith requires accountability. And what they believe in, if you don't believe in a God, there's no accountability. And that, that's why I'm trying to bring this point up with my boss, right? It puts a little bit of fear in you that like, man, now I'm accountable. I've got to like meet this goal or else he's going to like grade me on it, you know? So, so that, that really is what it boils down to a lot of times is, is just the accountability um, part of it. So um, God was giving the Israelites um, um, this book at a time that they would be encountering all kinds of differing worldviews from the nations surrounding them. Um, <clears throat> and um, what else does God confront in Genesis? He confronts Adam's sin, Cain's murder, Noah's generation, Babel's rebellion, Abraham's lying, Sarah's unbelief, and the list goes on. So God confronts people in their sins. <clears throat> What's interesting, and this is just amazing, right? I mean, this was so many years ago that God gave Genesis, right? Would you say that the book of Genesis is still confrontational today? Yeah. It, that, that's just, it's just amazing, right? But, and there's still a, a, an effort today to like try to like, take off those edges of Genesis to make it non-confrontational, like, uh, let's, yeah, the whole, like, God created man and woman, let's, like, let's take off that edge, and mm, he created the world in six days, I, mm, I don't know, let's, mm, let's take off that, it, it's too confrontational 
for our generation. Let's, let's, let's take off some of these edges, okay? I mean, it's just amazing that God had a purpose for this book. And he had a purpose for the book then, and he has a purpose for the book today. And it, it's still a confrontational book. Um, <clears throat> but the conclusion that we can draw um, is that uh, it needs to remain true to what God intended. Um, so the last thing I'll say, and obviously we're going to skip the A and I time, and we're going to go to our business meeting after I finish this, but I am on the last page, all right, <clears throat> is that um, we are going to make progress in Genesis. Uh, last week, Eric uh, got through, in the beginning, God created the heavens. No, no, actually, in the beginning, God, right? So we're going to get to, in the beginning, God created, all right? So we're going we're gonna to get we're going to get one word further than Eric got last week. All right, and then next week we'll, we'll move on from there. <clears throat> but I promise we will go faster. Um, so um, let's look at this word created, okay? Um, I don't want to just skip over this, and actually I'll be done in, in less than five minutes. Um, the Hebrew word for the word created is bara. Okay, I don't know if you guys that took Hebrew, or if I'm saying that right, but it's like B, it's B-A-R-A, but like it, the pronunciation is like B-A-W-R-A-W, ba-ra, okay? <clears throat> and um, the word has the idea of fashioning, okay? Like you think of like you've got clay and you're, you're fashioning something or you're forming something, you're shaping something. And um, that's where... The word here, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth. He also, it's like when he created the sea creatures, he created man in his image. Same word, bara. And what's interesting is, did you know that in the Bible, only God can bara? Okay, only God baras. Um, <clears throat> and uh, um, this fashioning, okay, Um but what's instructive to us is that um, besides creating the heavens and the earth and man, I want us to notice one other thing that God barad, and it's Psalm 51.10. Uh, you can write it down, but I'll read it to you. Create in me a clean, this is where David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, he says, create, that's the word bara again, bara in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And again, it, God is the one who does the creating. God is the one who does the bara. And um, so how are we informed by this? Um, in my understanding, it is that God is the one who creates regeneration. Um, the same God who created the sun, the moon, Jupiter, Venus. Um, he's the one. He could, he could speak all those things. He could just let there be light. There was light, you know, effortlessly, right? Um, that same God is the one who creates regeneration, who um, uh, says, you're born again. I'm creating a new person. 
Um, and what does 2 Corinthians 5, 17 say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Um, I, I just think that's amazing. I think that's um, uh, amazing that um, our salvation, our new life in Christ is right up there with God saying, light, uh, sun, moon, stars, uh, all of those things. It's just, it's that, um, it's that simple for him to do. Um, how it also in, informs me is that he's the one, like I said, he's the one who does it. He's the one who creates. He's the one who can create a new creation. He's the one who saves, right? It's not us. And uh, again, back to like trying to talk a skeptic, try to convince or argue a skeptic into the kingdom of heaven. No, God is the one who is the one who creates. So this is freeing to me because, I mean, what that means to me is that like, I can pray for my friends. I can pray for coworkers. I can pray for family. God, would you, barah, my cousin, would you, barah, my, my coworker, you know? I just, it, you're the one God who, who needs to make the new creation. You're the one who can create. I just pray. I mean, uh, it's on God to, to create that new creation um, just like he did in us. And so we can just, again, just put our faith in him and trust him and, and, and pray that he would, would do that just like he did at, at the beginning of time. So... Um, so think about that this week. How does the fact that God um, created regeneration cause us to see the world around us? And um, how can we be a people of God who proclaim his creation? Those are two questions that I had for our question and answer time. So just think about those things this week. Again, how can we be a people of God who proclaim his creation? And how does the fact that God created regeneration cause us to see the world around us. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I just thank you for um, your awesomeness. Uh, there's, not really, there's not really words that we have that can describe how great you are, but um, we try. And um, But Lord, I just... Um, I pray that from what we learned about you today, God, that we would just um, grow in our level of trust. Um, understand that you're omnipotent and that you're, that song again that I was thinking of, you're sovereign over us. Um, God, I just, I just pray that... Um, these truths will transform us. You, you said, um, let uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I pray that um, these truths of, of you creating us will transform us, God. Um, that, you, that, you, that you created, just like you created the world for a purpose, 
you actually created us. I mean, there, you had to have created us for a purpose. You know, you didn't just, we're not just a plaything. Um, so we thank you for that, God. And uh, we're just in awe, grateful. Pray, God, for many in this room, God, who, who have not been made a new creation yet, Lord. Many in families who are children that don't know you yet, God. I pray for them that you would make them a new creation. Um, thank you for the ones recently, God, that you've made a new creation, Lord, that we just recently celebrated um, in their baptisms. And um, pray that you would, you would do that for many more um, of ones that we know, friends, family, neighbors, in, the, in, in this coming year. Pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.